Hello, everyone. We'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the Old Testament, which set the stage for the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live as a man, to sacrifice for our sins, that we might be reconciled to you. Thank you that we are now beginning the exploration of, of the New Testament. And we ask that you would help us to unfold the many treasures that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be beginning with the New Testament. We're going to be doing part one of Matthew. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. And we know all about the promises that led up to this in the Old Testament. Saul was originally called Levi and identified as a tax collector, the son of Alphaeus. We can read about him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. His new Christian name was probably contracted from the Semitic Mattathias, which means gift of Yahweh. You remember that Mattathias from last time, the intertestamental period, was the man who started the Maccabean or Hasmonean dynasty. Mattathias is actually the, the Greek form of the name. Hebrew is Matityahu. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic comes from the Greek synopsis, synopsis, which means seeing together. There is a high degree of similarity found among Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the presentations of the ministry of Jesus. The synoptic gospels concentrate primarily on what happened during the ministry of Christ. The gospel of John gives information about why the events happened, their theological meaning. That's why new believers are often encouraged to begin their study of the scriptures with the gospel of John. I'm going to go through each of the gospels individually and then I'm going to do a session on the harmony of the Gospels, how we can put the Gospels together. And I'm also going to deal with the so-called synoptic question, synoptic debate, dispute. Uh, that has to do with things like uh, which of the synoptic Gospels came first, which was written first, the order in which they were written, and who borrowed from whom, that sort of thing. Back to our flight acronym, facts, landmarks, itinerary, gospel, history, and travel tips. Though the Gospel of Matthew does not name its author, church tradition holds and asserts that, that Jesus' disciple Matthew, originally named Levi, wrote the account. Matthew was a tax collector who became a disciple of Jesus. The date Matthew was written is unknown, but most Bible scholars project it to be between 60 and 70, but it may have been written as early as AD 38. Matthew presented Jesus Christ as the true Messiah and King of the Jews. He wrote for the benefit of the Jews scattered abroad who had, had no access to the apostles' teaching. And we look 
last time at how the Jews came to be scattered across the known world. His skill at record keeping, remember he was a tax collector, made him quite capable of presenting the facts of Jesus' life right alongside Old Testament references to him. In particular, Matthew quoted a number of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus' first coming to convince the Jews of Jesus' messiahship and authority. The itinerary, the first part of the book is about the preparation for the king. Then in chapters four through 13, uh, about the principles of the kingdom. Then the proofs of the kingly, of the kingly power. Then the parables of the kingdom. There's an extensive part of, of Matthew about parables. And finally, the passion and power of the king. This has to do with his crucifixion and resurrection. The four gospels, the four proclamations of the Evangelion, the good news, serve less as biographies and more as testimonials to the most astonishing historical event ever. God became flesh and walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ. The key word in Matthew's gospel is fulfilled. As Jesus fulfilled prophecies, prophecy after prophecy about the Messiah, Matthew made note of it and quoted those Old Testament prophecies in his writing, looking to persuade his Jewish audience. So let's look at some of those prophecies. There's the prophecy about his birth. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. There was a prophecy about his birthplace. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There was a prophecy that he would go to Egypt and then return from Egypt. So there's a prophecy about the Egyptian sojourn, returning from the Egyptian sojourn that was fulfilled. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother, but it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if we look at that prophecy in the Old Testament book of Hosea, it's talking about Israel. It's not talking about an individual, but Jesus was the, the Israelite par excellence. He was the epitome of Israel. That prophecy was fulfilled in him. There is a prophecy about the killing of the babies in, in Bethlehem. Then what had been spoken through the, Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So there's another prophecy that was fulfilled.
his residence in Nazareth. That was also prophesied. And he, meaning Joseph, with his family, Mary and the Christ child, left for the regions of Galilee and went and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, some critics of the Bible will point out, and they are correct in saying this, that you can look high and low through the Old Testament prophets and you won't find a specific statement saying that he shall be called a Nazarene. It doesn't say anything about the Messiah being living in Nazareth or being called a Nazarene. So why did Matthew say that? Well, there's a reason for this. Sometimes people think, often people think that uh, the, the, New, the Old Testament doesn't really have much value for us New Testament Christians. Well, that's not the case. That, that would be a big mistake. An understanding of the Old Testament, an understanding of, of Jewish history and culture and language uh, can greatly enhance our understanding of the New Testament. The Old Testament reference that we give to this uh, prophecy about being a Nazarene from Nazareth is in Isaiah 11.1 1, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Well, what does a branch have to do with Nazareth? The Hebrew word for branch is Netzer. Other prophets refer to the Messiah as a branch. Jeremiah in chapter 23 and also in chapter 33, Zechariah in chapter 3 and also in, verse, in chapter 6. Naming a village Nazareth, not Zareth in, in Hebrew, is the equivalent of calling it Branch Town or Branchville. So Jesus was a branch and that was indicated even in the place where he lived. It would be something like Branch, Branchville in, in the English. So he lived in Nazareth. He was a branch and he fulfilled that prophecy. The work of the forerunner. This is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And of course we know that one, in hindsight, we know that one was John the Baptist. The location of his principal labors was prophesied. He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. His healing ministry was prophesied. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. 
his demeanor of God as God's servant was prophesied. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and, his, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The parabolic cast of his teaching, in other words, the fact that he would speak in parables. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. It was prophesied that he would offer himself to Israel. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is the day of the, of the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. His arrest was prophesied, but all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures and the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. As far as the history of, of Matthew was concerned, when he left Malachi, the Persian Empire ruled the world. When the book of Matthew opens, we see a new leading power in Europe, in the Middle East, the Roman Empire. Augustus Caesar's Augustus Caesar was the Roman emperor from 27 BC to AD 14. He was the emperor when Christ was born. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor from AD 14 to AD 37. So he was the emperor when Christ was crucified and resurrected. Pontius Pilate was the Roman procurator of Judea from AD 26 to 36. The Romans put a descendant of the Edomites on the throne of Judea, Herod the Great, we learned about him last week, who built up Zerubbabel's temple into a majestic complex, but also ordered the slaughter of innocent children as he hunted the foretold Messiah. His son, Herod Antipas, succeeded him in Jesus' day, when Jesus was still quite young, reigning over the regions of Galilee and Perea east of the Jordan River. What can we learn from the book of Matthew? Well, there are many things that we can learn, of course, but I've listed a few of them here. The world's idea of what it means to be blessed, having health and wealth and beauty, is the opposite of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Happiness comes from being poor in spirit, mournful and meek. It's a paradox, but it's consistent with Scripture. God honors those who humble themselves. Jesus is the great liberator. Matthew included the names of four women in his genealogy of Christ, something that just wasn't done at that time in Jewish history. Jesus recognized women, talked with them, healed them, and made them part of his plan to shake up the world. Feminists didn't liberate women. Jesus did. The golden rule is the summary statement of how God's children to live, 
the summary statement of his kingdom ethics, how we, as his children, are to treat others. It sets Christianity apart from all other belief systems. Instead of not doing what you don't want others to do to you, Jesus told us to do the right thing, to be loving, kind, and generous. The genealogy recorded in the Gospel of Matthew differs from that recorded in the Gospel of Luke. There are two Gospels that give us genealogies, Matthew and Luke. But they're different. They, they differ from one another. The two genealogies diverge after David. Matthew's genealogy is traced through Solomon, while Luke's genealogy is traced through Nathan, another son of David. The genealogy in Matthew is believed to be that of Joseph, and the genealogy in Luke is believed to be that of Mary. I'll talk more about these two genealogies when we get to the Gospel of Luke. I'll talk about the differences between the two. I'll talk about the, the curse of Jeconiah, and I'll also talk about the mysterious way in which the two genealogies come together again in the person of Zerubbabel, and then they diverge again. So talk about some of these details when I compare the two, the two genealogies when we get to the Gospel of Luke. Now, there's some interesting things about this genealogy that Matthew gives. He tells us that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. And then there were 14 generations from David to the exile. And then there were 14 generations from the exile to Christ. And the peculiar thing about this genealogy is that David is counted twice. He's the last of those 14 generations from Abraham to David. And then he's counted again in the 14 generations from David to the exile. Why is that? Why, why did Matthew choose to arrange his genealogy in this way of 14, 14, 14? What is so significant about the number 14? Well, once again, this is where understanding um, Jewish history and culture and tradition and language helps us out. In Hebrew, David is Dalet Vav Dalet. We read from right to left, of course, but in this particular case, it doesn't make any difference because David begins and ends with a Dalet. But anyway, it's Dalet Vav Dalet. Now, some of you may know that in the Hebrew language, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet can also be used as numerals. So the, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, is one. The second letter of the alphabet, Bet, is two. The third letter of the alphabet, Kimmel, is three, and so on. Each letter has numeric value. So what, are the, what is the numeric value of the letters which make up David? Well, the first Dalit has a value of four. Vav has a value of six. 
and I'll tell you a four. So if we add those numbers up, four, six, four, we get 14. So that's why it was so important to Matthew to arrange his genealogy so that we 14, 14, 14. So in effect, Matthew was saying, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, has David written all over him. So that's the significance of that particular arrangement of Matthew's genealogy. The book of Matthew is made up of five major discourses. There's the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. There is the instruction of the disciples in chapter 10. There's the kingdom parables, and we'll talk a lot about that a little bit later. Chapter 13. In chapter 18, there's the obligations of discipleship. And then in 24, chapter 24, there's the Olivet Discourse, which is very important to Bible prophecy. The various Gospels have some events which they all report, some events which some of them report, and some events which are unique to that particular Gospel writer. These are the events that are unique to Matthew, that are found only in Matthew's Gospel. The vision of Joseph, the visit of the Magi, that's found only in Matthew. One difference between Matthew and Luke is that Matthew records the birth of Jesus Christ from the perspective of Joseph, and Luke records the birth of Jesus Christ from the perspective of Mary. So we also learn about the flight to Egypt in the book of Matthew. It's not in any of the other Gospels. And the massacre of the infants is found in Matthew. The dream of Pilate's wife. This is something that occurs just before Jesus is crucified. You remember the story of Pilate washing his hands, but Matthew is the only one who tells us of the dream that Pilate's wife had at the time. He's the only one who tells us about the, the death of Judas, how that occurred. And he's the only one, the only gospel writer, that tells us of the resurrection of the saints. Recall at the time of the crucifixion, the Old Testament saints were raised from the dead from their graves in Jerusalem. Matthew is the only one who tells us about that. He's the only one who tells us about the bribery of the guard, the guards that think were stationed at Jesus' tomb. And he's the only one who tells us about the baptismal commission that his the Great Commission, as it's called, in the last chapter of Matthew. One of the things that I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about is a puzzling passage that occurs in Matthew. This is in Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Many 
people have been puzzled by what, is, what in the world is the meaning of those verses that, that the kingdom of, of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? Well, once again, understanding Old Testament passages comes to our rescue. I referred to this when we were studying the prophet Micah. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold. One who breaks open the way, Haporetz in Hebrew, will go before them. They will break through, Horetz in Hebrew, the gate and go out. Their king will pass through them, through before them, the Lord at their head. Understanding the, the traditions, the, the practices of the Egypt of the of the Israelites helps us to understand what is going on here. The people understood that the one who breaks open the way was the messenger who would cause people to repent and be ready. This is a picture of John the Baptist. Then the sheep would explode out to follow the shepherd king, the Messiah, God himself. You have to understand a little bit about what uh, shepherds did and how they took care of their sheep. This idea that, that Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep and that his people are his sheep, he cares for them. We see that again and again parable of the lost sheep, the, the fallen sheep in Matthew, uh, the parable of the sheep and goats also in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, in John, Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then of course in John 10, the relationship, we, we read a lot, a great deal about the re relationship between shepherd and sheep. And we see this in the Old Testament as well. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I am going to set over my sheep one shepherd, my servant David. I am going, behold, the Lord comes with might. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And then of course in that benediction at the end of Hebrews, which Eric and Bob often use at the end of church services. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. I am the good shepherd. We read in John, I am the door. Well, what is the relationship between a shepherd and a door. Well, there is one if you look at how sheep were cared for in ancient times. On my most uh, recent trip to Israel, our guide took us to a cave where sheep were held. At night, to protect the, the sheep from predators, the shepherd would bring them into either a cave or to a stone enclosure 
And then the, the shepherd would sleep at the opening of the cave or the stone enclosure. He would sleep with his rod so that any predators who wanted to attack the sheep had to get past him. So the well, the caves and stone enclosures were used. And the shepherd would sleep at the opening with his, with his staff and put the sheep inside the pen at night. But in the morning, uh, often some part of the, the front part of the stone wall would be broken down and the sheep would just explode. They would just rush out the pasture following their shepherd. This is um, a stone enclosure. You can see that, that part of it is broken down because the sheep were led out to pasture. So this scripture about the violence and the, and the kingdom of God being taken violently is not really a, a very good translation once we understand what is happening there. We read that passage in the light of the Old Testament prophets about how sheep were cared for. So we might we might translate that those verses that we read as the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, that forceful men lay hold of it. So we as as God's people, as God's sheep, are just chomping at the bit, you might say. We're just waiting to get out the pasture when the kingdom of God comes and Jesus returns. So that gives you a little bit of insight about what this passage is about, this baffling passage, puzzling passage. Each of the Gospels contains parables. In some cases, uh, those parables are found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. In some cases, they're found in two of the Synoptic Gospels. And in each case, some of, in each, the case of each Gospel, there are some parables which are just unique to that particular gospel. These are parables which are unique to Matthew. The parable of the tares, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, the parable of the drawing in of the net, the parable of the unforgiving servant, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25. Now there's one, there's a couple of parables in particular that I want to take a look at because I feel that the common evangelical explanation of what these parables are about isn't really accurate. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
The customary explanation of the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price is that they teach them that the believer must forsake all to follow Christ. So then most people, when they read these parables, they assume that they're about what the believer must, have do, must do in order to be in the kingdom of God to achieve eternal life. But is that really what the, what the parables are about? Whatever merit the concept of unqualified commitment may possess, is it really the central message conveyed by these two parables? No, I'm not saying that uh, you shouldn't have unqualified commitment, but I'm saying that that is really not what these parables are about. Leaders influential in the early development of, of the church, such as Irenaeus and Augustine, set the course that was to be followed for centuries by asserting that the treasure is Christ and the field is the scripture. That's what they said. And that idea has been followed for centuries. That understanding has been taken up by influential teachers and preachers down through the centuries, and it continues to our day. A typical example is what we read in the New Bible Commentary. The parables of the treasure and of the pearl belong closely together and illustrate the wholehearted response which the kingdom of God requires. No sacrifice is too great and no other concern must stand in the way of it. J. Dwight Pentecost sets forth an alternative explanation. The problem in interpreting these two parables is to determine whether they are to be understood from a human viewpoint or from a divine viewpoint. If the man in the first parable, parable of the hidden treasure, and the merchant in the second, that's the pearl of great price, represent individuals, then the parables are teaching that the value of the kingdom the value of the kingdom and the desirability of entering it. So that would make the kingdom, the, the treasure, the pearl, to be obtained. It seems better to view the parables from a divine viewpoint. The man in the first parable and the merchant in the second would represent Christ himself. The purchase of the field and of the pearl refer to Christ's work on the cross to provide salvation for the sins of the whole world. That's from J. Dwight Pentecost. But he's not the only one who holds this view. Some others who take a similar view are Lehman Strauss and Ed Glasscock and Lloyd Ogilvie. This view is supported by Exodus 19.5 and Psalm 135.4 which say, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For himself, Israel has his own possession. God attaches great value to his people. 
identification of Christ as the man in the field and the merchant is preferable to identification of believers in these roles for at least four reasons. I'll give you four reasons why I think that the man who found the treasure and the merchant who purchased the pearl represent Christ rather than a believer or a prospective believer. The first reason is that the portrayal of Christ as man or merchant does not require a shift in symbols. The picture of Christ as the purchaser of his people is more consistent with New Testament teaching. The concept of finding in Jesus' parables refers to God's active search for men, not the reverse, not man's search for God. And this, this alternative explanation avoids the implication of earning salvation. So we'll, we'll look at each one of these reasons more closely here in more detail. The hidden treasure and the pearl of great price are found within the context of seven parables that appear in Matthew 13. In the other parables of the cluster, the people of the stories represent either a member of the Godhead or angels. Human beings, whether saved or unsaved, are represented by non-human elements in the parables, either inanimate objects or animals. So in these kingdom parables that we find in, in Matthew 13, in all of the other ones, people represent either God or the angels. They don't represent people. People are represented as either non-human elements, like, like inanimate objects or animals. So why would it be different in these two parables? If people are made to symbolize something other than what they represent, both before and after in the other parables, then a dramatic shift is required in the thinking of Jesus' hearers. And not without any warning that such a shift is about to take place. Why introduce this discontinuity into a context which otherwise reveals various aspects of God's dealings with mankind, focus on man's dealings with God. So all of the other parables tell us about various aspects of God dealing with man. Why would these two focus on man's dealings with God, what man has to do? As far as the, um, the second one about, uh, about uh, buying, The picture of Christ as the purchaser is more consistent with the teaching of the New Testament, and that's for sure. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus summarizes the purpose of his ministry. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus offers his life as a ransom, a payment. The many do not have to offer up their lives, for his life is an exchange for theirs. He pays the necessary price. We don't purchase him. We don't buy salvation. In 1 Corinthians 6.20 and in 7.23, the Apostle Paul informs his fellow Christians, you were bought with a price. In 2 Peter 2.1, Jesus Christ is referred to as the master who bought them. Revelation 5.9 addresses the Savior and declares, by your blood, you ransom people for God. So Christ does the buying. He buys us. We don't 
by him. We don't buy salvation. Also the theme of finding, the concept of finding Jesus in Jesus' parables refers to God's active search for men, not the reverse, not men searching for God. So the theme of finding is also present in both the parables in question, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. Jesus uses the theme of finding in other parabolic teaching as well. In Matthew 18, 13, Jesus describes his ministry as finding lost sheep. In the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Matthew 21 through 16, the owner of the vineyard goes out at the 11th hour and finds more workers. So it's always God finding man, not man finding God. In the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, the king sends his servants to find guests for the feast. Within the parabolic teaching material of Matthew, finding always refers to God's activity through Jesus to reach out to the lost. With regard to other parabolic use of finding, Luke 15 adds confirmation to Matthew's usage. All three of the parables in this chapter have God in Christ finding the lost sinner. These parables have to do with the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. It's always God in Christ finding the lost sinner. Within the parabolic teaching of Jesus, finding seems always to refer to God's active search for men, not the reverse. And then with regard to the last point of not teaching salvation by works. Well, the view that the man and the merchant in the parable symbolize individual believers, that's possible, but it has a major difficulty in that it would seem to indicate that people enter the kingdom through their own sacrifice and by their own efforts. This would teach a false doctrine of salvation. So there's, those are the reasons why I think the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price should be seen as God finding his people as a, as a treasure and the, the sacrifice of him giving all for his people, not his people giving all for him. In the, the, in the Gospels, there are parables about nets. For those of us who are not professional fishermen and are not familiar with nets, a net is a net. We don't distinguish between them. But it is helpful to understand the different kinds in the Gospels and in the Gospel parables and also in the events of the New Testament. The first type of net is the cast net, the type of net that you throw. And we, we, we read about one of these in the Gospel of Mark. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting their nets into the sea where they were fishermen. They were using cast nets. One of the parables that we read about in, in Matthew chapter 13, one of the parables of the kingdom, is the parable about the dragnet, about drawing the net. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet 
that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So this is the dragnet. The dragnet was spread out and then it was drawn to shore. And they could sort out the, the fish, the good ones and the bad ones. That's the dragnet that you read about in Matthew. There's a third kind of a net, the trammel net. This uh, net is done out in the, in the lake rather than from the shore like the dragnet. We read about this in the Gospel of Luke. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, a great number of fish, they, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink both the boats. So that's the trammel net. It was used out in the lake from, from the ship. So understanding those different kinds of nets helps us to better understand the, the stories and the parables that we read about in the Gospels. And then I want to conclude by talking about another parable, the parable of the leaven. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Three measures literally is three seas. Three seas of flour. Jesus' listeners would have recognized this as a reference to Genesis 18.6. What is that about? Well, this is when the, the three mysterious guests came to visit Abraham at his tent in Hebron. This was just prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the time when Abraham bargained with God and trying to say, well, if there are if there are at least this many, will you spare them? Well, what about if there are this many, will you spare them? He kept trying to negotiate with God and to get him to spare Sodom and Gomorrah because that's where his nephew Lot lived. But anyway, that's when Abraham said to Sarah, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, need it? and make cakes. Three seas is about 50 pounds of flour, enough to feed 100 people. So he was making up, putting together a lot of cakes for these three guests. Usually women saved enough leavened dough from one day to act as a starter for the next day's loaf. The fact that Sarah's leavening was sufficient for such a huge baking project must have seemed like a tiny miracle. When Jesus referred to this passage, his audience, especially the women, 
would have smiled as they visualized Sarah's leaven causing such an enormous batch of dough to rise. So, <clears throat> once again, being familiar with the Old Testament passages, being familiar with the history, the customs, the language of the Jewish people, enhances our study of the New Testament, and that's certainly very true in the book of Matthew. 